Hello, and welcome back to another episode of the Road to Rank podcast. My name is Dr. Steven Kruger, and I'm here to give you advice for a successful residency match. Hey everyone, it's that time of year again where residency interviews are well underway. Obviously, this application cycle is quite different due to the pandemic, with most if not all interviews happening virtually. So because of that, I wanted to put this episode together to really dive into the virtual interviews and give you all some tips on how you can knock them out of the park. To help with this, I've invited a good friend of mine onto the show to give his two cents on virtual interviewing, and I think he's well-suited for the job, considering he's been through not one, not two, but three match cycles, now in his second fellowship at Stanford. Please note that we recorded this episode back in August, but most of the information should still be relevant to those who are interviewing right now. And with that, Let's jump on into today's interview. I am joined here today by Dr. Ricky Hansra. I am so excited for this interview. We've been waiting a long time to schedule this. Dr. Hansra comes from UMass, where I train now, and we were sad to see him go back to the West Coast for his Cardiac Critical Care Fellowship. So welcome to the show, Ricky, and thank you so much for being on today. Thanks, Stephen. Um, I definitely am really excited to be here. Uh, happy to see you again and definitely miss the UMass family. Oh, well, we miss you too so much. How are you liking it out there? How's it going? Uh, California is really interesting right now. Unfortunately, environmentally, it's on fire. So that's not fun. Um, but I think one of the big things, just adjusting to the new culture of Stanford in terms of their practices, their nuances, and their uh, dynamics is the thing that I'm catching up with the most. It's kind of reminiscent of intern year when you start working as an intern and you don't know the hospital or the lay of the land or who people are, or how to really behave, but getting cl- uh, closer and closer to being comfortable at Stanford. Of course. It's always uh, feeling like you're the new person on the block whenever we start a new level of training, such as medicine, I guess. So let's back up and just have you tell us a little bit about your background. Yeah. So I came to Massachusetts in 2014 for my internal medicine uh, training and absolutely loved everything about UMass. And that's why I ranked it so highly. I ended up staying at UMass for cardiology based on my experiences with internal medicine and the mentorship that I developed there. And in my cardiology fellowship, further honing in on the type of patients I want to be treating, which is um, cardiac critical care. And so that's what I'm doing at Stanford is a fellowship in that, but also cardio obstetrics. So I do a lot of outpatient work with women who have cardiomyopathies, valve disease, pulmonary hypertension, Marfans, and either are pregnant or want to get pregnant, and working with um, cardiac or MFM and 
um, OB anesthesia on what is the best birthing plan for this patient. How much can they Valsalva? How heavy should the epidural be? Should they have a C-section? And really working in that multidisciplinary team to deliver the best care for mom and baby. Gosh, right off the bat, I have questions about this because it's just such an interesting path that you took. I'm curious how you even became interested in this part of cardiology. Yeah. So cardiology, when I first went into medicine, I was thinking I would initially go into critical care. I did my MICU rotation and there was something off about it. I just didn't enjoy what it had to offer. My subsequent rotations were in cardiology when I was an internal medicine resident, and everything just clicked, the anatomy, physiology, patients, and the fact that there was also um, cardiac ICUs, it blended the things that I wanted from my career. So that's what led me down to cardiology initially was the fact that the patient population and the fact that there's an intensive care portion was really appealing. When I became a fellow, one of my mentors um, early on told me that I really need to craft my fellowship for what I want to practice so that I don't waste the training years. And so we worked a lot on reflecting on what I really enjoy in medicine. And a fun fact is I actually loved OB as a med student and almost went into OB, um, but I didn't because of a number of reasons. And so through our conversations, I developed this niche for cardioobstetrics um, because I think you kind of see it too. Women who are pregnant, the only people that really take care of them is OB. And if they have any kind of heart issue, it becomes very scary. And so through my interest from medical school, critical care, anatomy, physiology, and advanced hemodynamics, this outpatient realm of cardioobstetrics developed And the inpatient side of critical care also developed. And the great thing uh, for cardiology is that you're able to craft your field the way you want to. And I encourage all trainees and residents to really reflect on the type of patients they want to take care of or the type of setting they want to work in and start working with their mentors on achieving that goal rather than you're coming up to graduation And then you're kind of scrambling to achieve that. Right. Wow. So, you know, that, that idea of forming a niche in medicine, I think is true in so many different specialties. And I think it's true, not only for you as a fellow now, and for me as a resident, but even as a fourth year med student to just even have the initial thoughts about what they might like to see themselves doing uh, down the road. And I think program directors like to hear that sort of thing. They most definitely do. And I think you're able to discuss goals with programs, whether you're a resident or a fellow, a lot more clearly and effectively. If you have very specific goals, whether you want to become a researcher or at least have that as a part of your Um, job, whether it's 80% research, 50% research, that's good to know. And if you have the skill sets for it, if you want to be clinical, if you want to be in medical education, if you are very much interested in electronic medical records and IT, quality improvement, all of these realms, having a clear vision will help you not only on the interview trail, but also identifying mentors that you'll be able to be paired up more successfully. The last thing you want is 
you're interested in research and you're paired up with a mentor who is much more interested in medical education and clinical outcomes. That's not going to be a good match. Right. And I'm so glad you just rattled off that whole list of different uh, options really for a career path, because I'm, I'm telling med students that work with me all the time, they kind of have to start figuring out how they're going to package themselves, you know, brand themselves on their application. What type of applicant are they going to become? And sometimes I get looks back like, I don't really know anything about what I want to do. Um, but you just rattled off a whole bunch of options, medical education, quality improvement, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And I think, you know, that's a very common theme when you're in medical school and finishing off because there's so many different ways and directions you're being pulled. Um, but you don't need a massive list. You need to identify one or two things that as a fourth year resident applying for uh, residency or fourth year student applying to residency, uh, you have to be able to discuss on interviews. Right. And uh, on top of that, you need at least one experience or research work or some project you've done to back that up. It can't just 100%. be, you know, I want to do teaching and yet you have no teaching experience, no medical education experience at all. I completely agree with you. So you clearly have a lot of experience in the match process now that you've been through a residency match, your first fellowship match, and now your second fellowship match. It's actually crazy to think about. I'm curious, you know, want to pick your brain, any kind of lessons or takeaways you've learned over the, over these, you know, match cycles. Yeah. So when I initially applied for residency, I cast a very broad net. I was applying East Coast, West Coast, Middle America, um, the South, because I really didn't know a lot of different hospitals except for the ones that I rotated at. And I wanted to not box myself into one specific region. And I understand that there are people who need to stick to a specific area of the country because of family and kids. And that's totally fine. If you have the flexibility of moving um, or have that desire, I think it's really important to cast a wide net because the last thing you want to do is if you're applying for a competitive residency, you didn't apply to enough programs and you're realizing it and then having to resubmit your applications again later on in the cycle where the response may not be as robust. So that was more for internal medicine. And I, you know, I almost missed my interview at UMass because of weather delays, but I was able to make it. And I think everything worked out for a reason because I absolutely fell in love with coming to Massachusetts. Um, for fellowship, I think what I did, I became much more specific because I had very specific goals. For example, I did not apply to uh, Mass General, the Brigham, Mayo Clinic, Cleveland Clinic, these big research institutions, because that wasn't what I wanted to do. And those institutions, if I would have applied, they would have seen very quickly that Ricky doesn't do bench research. He hasn't written a grant. He's probably not the type of fellow we would want. And they are very quick to see that. So even though it would be great to say you trained at Mayo, 
it didn't align with what I wanted for my fellowship and my future career. So I didn't apply to those programs. So it became more narrow. And then finally for um, cardiac critical care, it's such a small field that I was fortunate that there's only a handful of programs in the country or institutions that have such training programs. Um, But by that point, you're becoming very, very specific and you know exactly which institution is going to be able to offer you what you want. And at that point, it almost becomes kind of how we are having a discussion and seeing if this is even a place that you'd want to train. So I actually called my program director and had a conversation with him before I even applied to see if this would be a place I'd want to come to. And he was very understanding of that. Um, And we had a great conversation. I was like, okay, this is a place that I will be able to gain skill set that I don't have currently and need for the future. Right. So it's interesting when you get to that second fellowship or really any fellowship, how small the playing field get, even smaller than even some of these already small residency, you know, specialties and how it, it, it does become picking up the phone, knowing who's who and whose interests align with yours. Most definitely. And I interviewed also at Cedar sinai and I got that interview from one of my attendings calling his friend who worked at Cedar sinai and said, my fellow's interested in your program. You got to really look at his application. And they said, yeah, send us his resume. And that's how I got an interview at Cedars. And so it becomes much smaller. Um, it again, highlights the importance of having good relationships with your attendings and mentors and um, working closely together for your future career goals. Mm. So I like how you mentioned uh, when you're, when you were applying to fellowship, it really became about which programs matched up with, you know, what you wanted out of a program. I actually do think that happens a lot in the residency application process too, at least for me, the application I put out there into the dermatology world, uh, you know, those were the types of interviews. Those programs were the types of interviews I ended up getting. Um, so I wanted a, a clinical dermatology program to train at. Similar to you, didn't have a lot of research interests or at least basic science research interests. And it reflected that. Yeah. Um, so in that way, I think the match really is a match where a program is looking for an applicant that will complement them well and vice versa. Right. I completely agree. And I, you know, and I think residents will be happier at those programs that align with their goals. And if your goal is to be a, you know, 50, 50 MD PhD research person, then you really should look at programs like that that are much more supportive of research and offer that because we know in training time is limited. And if that is a big passion of yours, you want to make sure you're at a program that will support those career decisions. Great. Well said. (laughs) So it's the summer of 2020 as we are recording this. Things are weird to say the least. Oh yeah. COVID-19 is here. Uh, away rotations canceled, no longer the opportunity to go audition at different programs. You know, you submit your ERAS application, you hear back from programs, they schedule you for a virtual interview. So unprecedented times we're in. Curious what you have to say about all of this. Yeah, it um, really became apparent 
in the spring that the online platforms just skyrocketed. We, you know, backtracking just converted everything, lectures. Some people were even rounding virtually. And I think now a lot of institutions are very savvy with the virtual platforms. In terms of interviewing, last year as a chief, I interviewed a lot of the applicants for our fellowship and some did well and some didn't do well. So I think just highlighting the importance of an in-person interview is that everybody is watching you when you come into a residency program. Other residents, fellows, uh, program secretaries, admin, et cetera. And not, they, they may not be able to help you get in, but your behavior can definitely be reported by everybody you come in contact with. So if you're a pleasant person on an interview day and you're engaging, that'll be very much reflected versus if you're someone who's on your phone and distracted and don't really have much to engage with or you just seem very off-putting, people will mention that. And so I think that's one of the things that interviewers should be very cognizant of. At some point, we'll go back to live interviewing. Uh, so keep that in mind. And I think a lot of the times we hear people say, well, you know, my opinion really doesn't matter, but it does. Everybody who's coming in contact with an interviewee has the potential to help or hurt them. Absolutely. Uh, you have to be nice to everyone. And that shouldn't scare applicants or intimidate applicants that, oh, everyone's judging me. It's just, um, you know, it's a chance for them to see who you are and what you'll be like in their residency program. Right. And everybody wants candidates that they're comfortable with, will work well with. That's what every program wants. And so that's what they're looking at. So yes, there's the interview portion where you meet and have specific questions, but the entire interview day is a chance for you to impress somebody or to unfortunately make a bad impression. So I'm curious, can you say some examples? Are you allowed to say some examples of what people did that really did not go over well? Yeah, so I think some of the uh, things that I saw, one was um, our interview day is really short. It's about four hours. But I would frequently see applicants on their phones texting, like on group threads. And you're sitting there, you're trying to, wanting to know about the program, but, you know, texting friends. Uh, you know, if it's an emergency, I'm more than understanding of being like, excuse me, I have to make a phone call to my wife. There's something that's come up or is that, you know, do you, is there somewhere I can go to make a phone call? And we totally understand things will come up. Um, people on Facebook or social media during the interview day, because you're walking by, you're getting coffee, you see somebody's on Facebook and it makes you wonder, well, how interested are they in your program and how much energy you're going to put into getting to know this applicant that would rather be on Facebook or Instagram than engaging with the other applicants or the other residents and fellows that are in the room um, who are there to talk to them and talk to them about the program and answer questions that they may have. Because for the next you know, three to four years, you're going to be at this institution. It's worth it for you to try to get every little piece of information um, from the people that are there. Right. And not for nothing, but even if you're at the end of your interview season and it's a program you maybe just showed up to just to have another place to rank still. I mean, these people could be future colleagues. It reflects on you as a person. 
um, you know, they're investing time in you and an interview slot in you. So, you know, it's the least you can do is to have that kind of courtesy, not to look at your phone, I guess. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, I, and especially cause it's, it's four hours and we're so used to being on our phones now cause we're all communicating through our phones, you know, whether it's messaging your teams or that's how you get your pages. So I understand how connected we are to them and how hard it is to disconnect from them. But it's one of the biggest things I've seen over and over and over again. And the people who interviewed well, they got rid of all distractions on the interview day. Their phones were put away. Uh, they just had their binder pen and just decided to be engaged and present in the moment um, rather than worrying about anything else. Th those are the big, I think, overt um, things that come into mind that are very small, but you can easily make a different impression on just those uh, small behaviors. I think, you know, coming in and having questions um, that you might be afraid to ask the interviewers, but want to ask residents or fellows is very important uh, to gauge if this is the type of place you want to work at, whether it's, you know, what the GME services are provided, um, work-life balance questions, because they're the ones who are working in the hospital and will be able to tell you what their day-to-day -day life is. So I know we can get a lot of information from online websites about the programs, but having these specific questions or about your specific goals and if faculty are supportive of that or do you have other fellows who are doing something, pursuing something similar um, is very important to ask or discuss. So it gives you an idea if this place will be able to support you and what you want to do. Because it's really easy for some people to say, yeah, we'll support X, Y, and Z, when in fact your clinical burden might be a bit too much for what you want, or um, that's just one example that comes to mind. Right. And you need to find that information out and that's your one chance to do it. Yeah. Now, I don't usually focus on the negatives like this, but I'm so interested because you have seen so many interviews and I think you just have an interesting perspective on the process. So I guess I'm just curious, are there any types of questions that people ask that rub interviewers the wrong way? Um, are there any um, red flags on an application you see that, uh, are, are worthy of discussion. Yeah. So questions that can rub people the wrong way. Um, I think a lot of it would be if you, it's how you phrase the question too. If you're curious about how often are you on call, that's a very valid question or what is the call schedule like, um, and leaving it open-ended but if you're coming in and saying, oh, your call schedule doesn't make sense to me, why don't you guys do it this way? Or Because that's what you've seen, that can be a little bit off-putting because the institution has done things in a certain way. Or saying, well, it seems like your program is very busy in one area. Have you guys ever thought about doing this? Um, and I think most programs probably have thought about a lot of the things that are increased volume, whether it's echo, cath, EP. That's just the most recent examples from me in um, fellowship, but they have thought about these things multiple times. So it's how you're phrasing your question and leaving it open-ended and having a discussion so you can understand what it's like is more important than making it about yourself and wanting to potentially change the way the program operates. And I've seen that a couple of times. 
and it's a it's a little bit odd because you don't really know how to answer those questions because you know it's really off-putting almost and you're just taken aback all of a sudden that someone's phrasing a question like that yeah that's that's so interesting recently i feel like i've had a couple med student rotators uh who will mention how things are done at another program uh or they'll mention how another attending at another institution does things or cutting edge research another attending is doing and as funny as it sounds even that's a little bit off-putting because you want you want and i guess you expect an applicant for that day or for that rotation whatever we're talking about here to be solely focused on your program and to show utter interest in you and you only. I agree. And I will give you a personal example. Now that I'm at Stanford and I'm running units, um, people, the nursing staff will ask me, Ricky, what should we be doing? And I'll, and I'll tell them like, well, what I was trained was doing X, Y, and Z, but I think the culture here is slightly different. Let me just confirm with the Tending if they're comfortable with this plan. And I think that's a way that you can merge either your prior experiences with your current institution. And granted, I'm already in the program, so it's a little bit different, but I don't want to be that fellow that is like, oh, well, I did it this way and you guys are doing it completely differently and I don't agree with it at all. But it's a way for me to learn what are other ways to handle the same problem. Right. And that's one of the best parts about training at other institutions. Yeah. So let's talk more about the virtual interviews. I mean, I know we'll both be kind of guessing at this point because it's so new, but what do you think about virtual interviews? How do you think they'll run? What do you think the roadblocks will be? The challenges will be for applicants? So I think virtual interviews um, will have a couple of different advantages. First off, one of the main things is being able to practice. So with Zoom and probably other platforms, you can record any of your sessions. So I think it's really important for trainees to have a couple of sessions, either with a friend, a colleague, a mentor, family, anybody, that they're able to have a 15, 20-minute interview and watch their habits. Are they using words such as um, like, you know what I mean, those crutches to fill in their answers because it's really difficult for us to recognize it when we're speaking. It's a lot easier for us to pick it up when we have to watch ourselves. And it's very uncomfortable to watch yourself or to listen to yourself if you've been recorded to understand what your crutches are. I do it frequently. Even when I give a lecture is I record myself and count how many times I've said, um, or so, because I know those are my crutches and I have to work on them every single day. So you're at an advantage right now that you're able to practice and really smooth out your presentation. I think another distraction, I'm going to list off a few, is you know if you're on an interview day and someone interrupts you, you can laugh it off and you can joke about the little mishap or any of those things. If I'm at my home and there's a distraction, it's really hard to laugh that off. For example, a dog barking, a kid running, or even noises outside of the house. So if someone's doing construction near where you live, that might be something you want to take into account on the interview day, unless you have a nice quiet office that'll give you complete 
privacy, that will be one of the biggest things um, that you may not be able to come back from. And even noises on your computer, so a lot of us, our emails will bing or a text message will come through and it's linked to the computer and it'll make a sound. So those are things that you should also be um, very cognizant of on the interview day. These are great. I, I wasn't even thinking of any of these things, but it's so true. All the Zoom and virtual didactics we've been doing, it's so annoying to hear the little email alert go off, whoever's speaking at that point. And I think it just, you know, like you said, those little distractions, they just take away from from your story as an applicant that you're trying to get get across in five minutes or however long it is. Yeah. I think one of the other things too is eye contact. So when you're in person, it's very easy to make eye contact. What are you going to do on the computer where you actively have to look up into the light and you cannot see your interviewer's body language and facial expressions as well? So what I've started doing is when I'm speaking, I look directly into the camera so the interviewer can see I'm making eye contact and to kind of gauge what they're thinking or their mood when they speak or ask a question, that's when I look down at them and then back up to the camera to make my response. Um, because I know it's very awkward to just look at this camera and light and not at a face, but the person on the other side is seeing it as eye contact because they're most likely looking down at the screen. I love that. What a great tip. You are just dishing them out right now. How about... <laughs> What do you think about lighting, uh, attire? You kind of mentioned surroundings a little bit. Yeah, um, I think to keep things simple and safe, uh, I fortunately have an office with some artwork on the wall that's just very Californian. And I think that's a really appropriate background. Um, I would say things like if you're on the beach might be a little bit tough, but you want to keep it as professional as you can. So I would say dress as you would be dressing if you were going for a live interview, men, shirt, um, jacket, etc. women, the same, whatever they're going to be wearing for their blouse and blazer top. Um, and then trying to find a very muted space. Cause even that can be distracting. If you have posters of star Wars and, you know, Harry Potter on the background, people are going to look at it, not because, they don't agree with having those posters up on the wall, but they're just going to look at anything that's behind you. And you want to keep that distraction to a minimum as well. Because multiple people may be interviewing you in, in the same day. And if three people are looking at your poster and lava lamp, um, it's going to be a little challenging. And it will certainly be memorable, but not <laughs> memorable in the way you want it to be. Correct. I mean, it's really not the time to be funny, I think. And I wonder yeah. if there will be some applicants that try that, that try to put a photo background or a sign or something to try to be funny. And I really just would caution against that. Yes, I agree. I think if you are struggling for a like office space that's muted, people have tried to put like their institution as their background or something else. Like you can get office space backgrounds with zoom and this is the other great thing about the recording feature is try it out and see what it looks like if it looks completely odd you're going to be able to know and adjust your strategy before the interview day right right 
But I think a lot of things will probably be the same, whether it's a virtual interview or a live interview, in terms of the content you have to come up with. I completely agree. The questions are going to be very similar. Their desire to get to know you, I think there might be even a heightened pressure because you're not there meeting them for breakfast and coffee and being able to hang out while other people are interviewing and then having lunch. So there's going to be, I think, almost added pressure for trainees to communicate well, describe their goals, uh, specific outcomes that they want for their career and what they're looking for in a program. So you almost have to be even more clear with what you're doing and your research about the program beforehand so you can articulate it in the time that you have. Right, exactly. So anything else you can think of that would be worth mentioning for these interviews coming up? Yeah, I think, you know, people still should ask questions about the program. And COVID is still with us. Some places it's worse, some places it's better. And I think how institutions are handling it or you have questions as to how their institution is dealing with COVID is very appropriate. I think a lot more trainees are actually going to be able to do more interviews because no one has to worry about traveling. So why not apply, apply broadly? And that kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier. Um, but you can also save some questions for a follow-up email if you don't feel um, the person that you're talking to may have the right answers or you're feeling just a little bit off with the interview. I always tell um, people that I've worked with that it's important to follow up with some questions that you may have, didn't ask, didn't get a clarification on, like, do not be afraid. And programs want to know and want to be able to clarify so everybody can make the best decision possible. And it may even spark some more conversation uh, amongst you and an interviewer, and who knows how that'll affect your ranking, hopefully positively. Right, right. If you you send a post-interview email and do it the right way, I think it can only help honestly. Yeah. Now the question is about before the interview and before interview invites have even gone out. Now that there's no away rotations, uh, for example, some of the med students at UMass this year, um, there's 10 of them. They're excellent applicants, um, but they haven't been able to do any away rotations at the places they, that, you know, UMass students typically do them. So what do you think about that? Is there a, a way to go about reaching out to programs and trying to, you know, describe your interest? You know, I think that's going to be um, very challenging because a lot of programs are going to be in a similar boat. So how do you help one person versus someone else or help clarify things that they might be interested in? And I think that'll be just very hard for programs in general. So they're going to actually be working harder to sell their programs. For example, they're going to have to create a way to show you their institution. And that's going to be with them having to make videos. I know I was a part of that for our fellowship. So every institution is working on recruiting, understanding that applicants are in a similar boat as our institutions that we're not able to go and interact like we used to. So they, on their side, are working as hard to try to get the best applicants and are more than willing to discuss things 
I think to a certain extent that they'll be able to. If you're talking about people actually reaching out to programs, I think that could be done either very well or really poorly. If you do not have your research done, if you don't have a very clear idea about an institution or why you would want to go to a very specific institution, that phone conversation can become very awkward very quickly because their program directors are able to tell candidates that have done their work and their research on a program and what they have to offer and those who haven't and are just trying to talk for the sake of talking. So I think you have to be very careful as to what you're trying to communicate, what your goal is with that communication. And if it's for general information, you can get a lot from the website, but if there's something very specific that you want to do and going back to that niche area of medicine you want to do, whether it's QI, med ed, quality improvement, whatever it is, then I think you have a grounds to be able to have a really good discussion with somebody in their program. And it doesn't even need to be the program director. You could email the program director and say, these are kind of my goals. Is there someone in faculty? I know you might be busy with recruitment that I might be able to talk with. I completely agree. I think if you have a specific reason why you think you'd be a great fit at a program or a program offers something that you clearly are interested in. And when I say clearly, I mean because of either experiences or something on that CV or application that proves that you are interested in that specific thing, then it really can't hurt. Like you said, in those cases, I think it can actually be really helpful. Even if it's geographically, if you have a specific connection to one program over another, Program directors do probably want to hear that because otherwise they're just sifting through hundreds of applications. But I completely agree. On the other hand, if it's just boilerplate emails going out to every program, you might as well not do it because it could actually probably hurt. Agreed. And I completely agree with you on that. Like you have to be very clear with your message. And, you know, it doesn't have to be a very long conversation. This is what I'll also say. If you have just two or three questions that you're not able to get the answer for, you can definitely preface, like, I just wanted to have a quick conversation about a few things that I haven't been able to get the answers to, but I'm really interested in your program for X, Y, and Z. Would it be able, would we be able to set something up? And I think that is perfectly fine. Um, and the program director will probably be able to squeeze that in much easier than if you think you need to have a very long extended conversation with someone. Right. Well, this has been great, as I knew it would be. Is there anything else you want to leave med students with who might be listening right now? Um, I think, in general, enjoy the process, even if it is one that we didn't want to have. Um, and remember that as much as you feel you're at a disadvantage, the programs are also at a disadvantage. One thing I will say, remember, now that you're not traveling – keep in mind your time zones. If you're in Massachusetts and you're applying to California, remember that time difference or vice versa because from the West Coast, you might have to get up at four in the morning to make your interview. Places like Arizona don't celebrate daylight savings time. So you'll have to know what time of year it is and approach it appropriately. I think that's going to be one thing to really stay on top of so you're not late for your interview. Um, and beyond that, if there are any other like follow-up questions or things that come up, I'm more than happy to answer them, Stephen, if you get some correspondence or anything like that. But 
overall, everybody will do well, deep breaths, um, and a little bit of practice will help too. That is such great advice. Thank you so much for being on the show and for giving us all of your experience and advice on this crazy process we call the match. We really appreciate having you on. Thank you so much for having me, Stephen. I hope you all enjoyed that interview with soon-to-be double board certified cardiac intensivist, Dr. Hansra. Let's recap some of the interview pearls he mentioned. Ricky discussed being pleasant and engaged with everyone you meet on the interview day, and this applies to virtual or in-person interviews. He reminded us to be present and avoid any and all distractions on interview day. Applicants should have plenty of thoughtful questions to ask both attendings and residents throughout the day, but be very careful about how you phrase them. For virtual interviews specifically, don't forget to practice, 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 and use the recording capability of either Zoom or other online platforms to hone your interview skills and behaviors. Make sure you find a quiet place that will give you complete privacy during the interview, and you should silence any and all alerts coming from your own computer. If your own med school is offering a space for students to interview, I would definitely take advantage of that because this is most likely going to be a quiet space without distractions and with a strong internet connection. You definitely don't want any technical glitches on the day of your interview. Ricky discussed maintaining eye contact throughout the interview, which can feel a little bit artificial on the computer, but be sure to look directly into the camera when you're speaking. And I'll also add you should keep the interviewer's faces up closer to your camera to naturally draw your eye towards it. Some people find it helpful to actually prop the computer up on either a few books or up on a stand, which may also help naturally draw your eye upward. This can make a huge difference. It goes without saying that you should dress professionally for these interviews. Don't forget to wear your pants, even if it is on Zoom. Be sure to position your camera in front of a simple, muted background. And while I would recommend against using one of the computerized backgrounds that Zoom offers, if you are going to use one of those, you have to try it out to make sure it doesn't look silly. A light source should be positioned behind your camera, facing towards you. And if you really want to stand out from the pack, I would actually recommend purchasing a ring light to literally put your face in the best light possible. You can buy one of these for less than $50 on Amazon, and I think they're a great investment. And finally, you may hear different opinions on this, but I would recommend keeping your hands below the camera when speaking during the interview. I performed a few mock interviews on Zoom with med students recently, and I found that their hand gestures were really pretty distracting and took away from the key points of their answer. Hand movements definitely make for more lively conversation in person, but to me, they just don't translate well to virtual interviews. Other than that, I really think a virtual interview is still an interview, so my advice is the same as it would be during any other year. Know your own CV inside and out, and be able to speak meaningfully about your experiences. Be enthusiastic and work hard to strike that balance between humility and confidence. 
be flexible, go with the flow, and don't forget to smile and just enjoy the day. I really loved interviewing at different programs and getting to meet people and see what made each program unique. Well, that's a wrap on today's episode. I hope you found these tips helpful, and I'm sending positive vibes to all those applicants who are currently in the midst of virtual interview season. If you have any questions or have feedback about today's podcast, please email me at steven at roadtorank.com. I love to hear from listeners and help in any way that I can. If you enjoyed today's episode, please recommend it to all your friends and leave a positive review wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you so much for tuning in and stay safe, everyone. Nice job. Oh my gosh, you're such a natural. Oh, you know me, just shaking hands, kissing babies for the past six years at UMass. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh, you're so good.